This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 252nd episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and this episode is presented by Warner Brothers' critically acclaimed film, A Star is Born, directed by Bradley Cooper. Starring Cooper, Lady Gaga, and Sam Elliott, the Los Angeles Times says it is, quote, passionate, emotional, and fearless, close quote, for your consideration in all categories, including Best Picture and Best Director. A Star is Born. Great fucking movie. My guest today on Awards Chatter, which is now but one of four podcasts that comprise the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network, the others being It Happened in Hollywood, Behind the Screen, and TV's Top 5, is an actor's actor who is just 33 but already has more than a decade of stage and screen work under her belt and has never given a performance that I don't regard as A-grade. Carrie Mulligan. The first major film in which Mulligan appeared was 2005's Pride and Prejudice. For her first leading role in a film, namely 2009's An Education, she received a Best Actress Oscar nomination. And she hasn't stopped doing standout work since. Indeed, she shines in 2010's Never Let Me Go, 2011's Drive and Shame, 2013's The Great Gatsby and Inside Lewin Davis, 2015's Far From the Matting Crowd and Suffragette, 2017's Mudbound, and this year, In Wildlife, an indie which Paul Dano and Zoe Kazan co-adapted from Richard Ford's 1990 novel of the same name, and Dano then directed. The film premiered at the Sundance Film Festival and also played at the Cannes, Toronto, and New York Film Festivals. IFC Films began rolling it out theatrically on October 19th, and in their film critics' reviews of the film, the Los Angeles Times called it Mulligan's, quote, career best performance, close quote, and the New York Times described her turn as, quote, the best performance of any I've seen in film this year. Through it all, Mulligan has frequently returned to the stage, most notably in revivals of The Seagull and Skylight that played at the Royal Court and then transferred to Broadway in 2008 and 2015, respectively, with the latter bringing her a Best Actress in a Play Tony nomination. And this year, she starred in an acclaimed one-woman show off-Broadway called Girls and Boys. No less an authority than the New York Times chief theater critic Ben Brantley has called her, quote, one of the most compelling stage actresses of her generation, close quote. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, Mulligan and I discussed all of the above and much more. 
But first, I was joined at the Westin Times Square in Midtown Manhattan by Emmy winner Christy Jacobson and Roger Ross Williams, the first black director ever to win an Oscar and who also has an Emmy to his name. They are the co-directors of a terrific new documentary short called Take Back the Harbor, which is about the remarkable environmental efforts that are being mounted by high school students and teachers to restore New York Harbor, the horribly polluted waters around the boroughs of the city. The film premiered at the Doc NYC Festival and had a theatrical run that qualified it for consideration for the Best Documentary Short Oscar, and it will also get a televised airing on Discovery on December 18th. Christy and Roger, thank you for joining us. Thanks it's for having us. It's great to be here, Scott. So, you have both made films about such a wide range of topics, and for our listeners, I, I know that you're aware of this, but just to give a few examples, Christy, everything from Solitary Confinement in 2016, Solitary, which won an Emmy, to Hunger in America in 2012's A Place at the Table, which won the Spirit Awards Truer Than Fiction Award and was nominated for a PGA Award, I believe, to Touch Shore, the restaurateur. I need to go and see. I need to track that one down. Maybe you can help me. In <laughs> 2006's Toots, which won the NBR Award for Top Doc. Roger, I've known you longer. I, I've known you. I, I haven't <laughs> met Christy before. So I am able to say, I know you're a man of many interests, but this is quite a range. One film about a remarkable young man with autism. That's, many people will know, 2016's Oscar-nominated Life Animated, to another one about American evangelical missionaries in Africa in 2013's God Loves Uganda, to a Zimbabwean woman who overcomes a disability in 2010's Music for Prudence, the one that you won your Doc Short Oscar for, which is all to set up the question, how did you guys come to each other and how did you come to this topic? Yeah. Well, Christy and I have known each other for a really long time. I think like, uh, like over, 15 years. Over 20. 20 years? Wow. Yeah. 20 years we've known each other. We worked together. We were like assistants together yeah. a long time ago uh, for a production company. Yeah. Where did it start? Well, no, we we got together working on a documentary special that was for People magazine, okay. actually. <laughs> Another magazine. Uh, you heard yes. about all the important subjects that we take on. Yes. Um, and we were among a kind of motley crew of some of the, well, best and brightest yes. in the documentary world. Yes. And um, we connected there and we have been friends and kind of following and supporting each other's work for that many years. But never previously worked together officially? Never officially. Okay. Never but officially. The phone call. The phone call. The phone Your call. phone call after you won the Oscar. Oh, yes. Oh, when I won, actually, that's right. Christy was the first phone call I made <laughs> after I won the Oscar, and I was in shock. And I was standing backstage, and I called Christy. I don't even know what I said. Yeah, I said, I was he said what just happened? I said, you won the Oscar. That's, so that's a pretty, that, that speaks to your relationship, though, that that was the first call. That's yes, a pretty nice. Yes, yes. Wow. Yes, and and Roger, just for listeners who might be wondering, we're, we're, I will focus on this documentary in a moment, but let's just, can we set the record straight about one thing? Yeah. Because your documentary short Oscar winning speech is going to be played for the until the end of time. Let's just Top tell time. people there's, the, again, this historic moment. It's a great moment for anybody to win any Oscar, but to have <laughs> the first time a black director has ever won an Oscar for, for any, in any category. Yep. And you get up there and you start speaking for about 10 seconds, if that, 
and then somebody comes in and ambushes you. What happened? Former producer came in, ambushed me. I got Kanye. Is what happened <laughs> before yeah. it was the, before it was fashionable. Before it was fashionable to get Kanye, I was Kanye by a former producer, and it was shocking. You know, you're standing up there in front of a billion people, and it's like this horribly embarrassing moment. But you know, it was actually a blessing in disguise because I got so much attention. Yes. Normally during the, the doc short category, right. people go out for nachos right. and go to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> but they actually watched and right, they actually right. talked about it. And I was the number one news story the next day. And the paparazzi was even following me around. Well, so. can we ask you, just give you the opportunity here. What would you have said if you had been allowed to finish what you were saying? Well, I wanted to acknowledge Prudence. You know, yeah. I really wanted to acknowledge this girl. And she was there. She had come all the way from Zimbabwe. This she is how Americans behave. <laughs> yes, yes. And, you know, I didn't get the opportunity to do that, but she's right. an extraordinary woman. Yes. So that's what I would have talked about. Okay. So we know from the fact that Christy was Roger's first call that you guys obviously have a special bond. But when you're going to eventually work together, which may have been something you thought about for a while, why was this the topic that you decided to do it about, Chrissy? Roger had just finished making the extraordinary film Life Animated, yes. and I had just finished making the film Solitary, yes. both of which were pretty intense experiences in making them. We shared a producer in Julie Goldman okay. on both those films, and we were kind of throwing around ideas about what was going to happen next, and we were all in like separate conversations with Discovery. Yes. And this subject came up, the New York Harbor. Who brought it up? Did you guys know about it already? Well, you know, we live in Manhattan yeah. and we're surrounded by water. And this is a city that it's an island. We live on an island, but we're not in touch with our environment. We're not in touch with the, the island we live on and the nature that is all around us. And we sort of use the harbor as a trash can, really. Yeah. And so... We were like, let's do something about where we live mm -hmm. and about saving the, the place that we live and making it better. And, and so when we had heard about the Harbor School, a school on Governor's Island for New York City school kids, that's part of the public school system that encourages these kids to get involved with the water that, that surrounds them. That was really exciting because a lot of New Yorkers are not not in touch with this sort of environment, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. your film begins by having some of the students who are at this school say that until they went there, they rarely saw any nature. You know, when you're in the certain boroughs here, you just see walls and pavement and sidewalks, and you don't even really kind of stop to realize that you are on an island. So, Christy, the aspect of this that's maybe most interesting is the Billion Oyster Project. For our listeners, can you explain what it is that these students are doing with that? Yeah, yeah. So the Billion Oyster Project's goal is to place, to grow and have oysters live and thrive a billion oysters by the year 2035 in, in New York's harbor. harbor. Yeah. And that sounds like, okay, so there's very, there were very few, in fact, almost zero when they started their project a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like that sounds like an outrageous and impossible dream, yeah. which is also partly, I think, what drew both Roger and I to it, because yeah. um, if something is easy, then that's not exciting. Yeah, yeah. And so the idea is that the Harbor School students, who are public high school students, are 
both getting their high school education at the school on Governor's Island, Mm -hmm. but also getting trained in a range of marine professions, aquaculture, marine biology, scuba diving. And they are working together with the founders of the Billion Oyster Project to build these reefs. And over time, and even over the time since we've met them and and today, they have gotten 28 million oysters into the harbor. Oysters filter the water. Oysters filter toxins out of the water, and they filter um, how many gallons is it, Christy, per oyster? A billion oysters would filter the standing water in New York's harbor once every three days. So, so I they had no idea about water. this. Does this mean when we eat oysters, we're eating all kinds of... Crap. Well, they they bring they filter they like bring it in yeah. and then they spew stuff back out after it's been cleaned or something. Somehow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like how they eat. How Most they of the oysters you're eating are farmed oysters, right, right, so the right. waters are clean. Yes. But it, you couldn't eat oysters out of New York I, City I Harbor. Would you would get no. very very sick. <laughs> that's a probably that's actually a challenge with the Billion Oyster Project because they're worried that New Yorkers will actually go down and eat the oysters <laughs> and then everyone will get sick. Hey. So the, the 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 DEP is very concerned yeah. about that. So that was part of the them. challenge. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, some other stats that your film provides, there are now 70 restaurants in New York that are working with the Billion Oyster Project, 70 schools that are engaged with it, 1,215 high school students, 6,500 plus middle school students who are involved with this, as well as 1,000 plus volunteers. My question, I guess, when you're looking at a film like this, do you embark on it knowing this is going to be what technically is called a documentary short or do you have to see what you're working with before you know whether or not it's going to be a feature length or a short? We always knew this was going to be a documentary short. We went into it with that in mind. And you you sort of, as you're structuring and shooting and thinking about the film, you're thinking um, that it's, it's structured as a short. And also with a short, you can sort of put it out there and reach a lot of people. And the schools can use it for educational purposes, mm-hmm. which is really great. Mm-hmm. So that school students, you know, with their short attention span right. kids can, um, you know, they can they can watch a short in the classroom. Yeah, so about that's, the length of a class, yeah. probably 45. Exactly, exactly. So the Billion Oyster Project goes into New York City schools all around the city. Not it's not just the school on Governor's Island, but they will go into schools and they will teach kids about their relation to the harbor and about marine biology. So so they this is a tool for them as well. And I think what we didn't know is what I at least rarely know when I'm filming is, you know, how we'll structure the film, like how will it all come together? And when I was hearing you read those statistics, I was reminded of our kind of hair pulling moments of, you know, how to tell that story in a 40 minute film. And it became apparent to us once we spent the more time we spent with the students and the more we understood, like you just described a real movement, Mm -hmm. like community is involved, restaurants are involved, students are involved, but not one student. It's not like one leader of the school. It really was this collective, which is why the film is populated with, you know, some amazing young adults now, Jesse and Gino and Chris Maris. And there's just so many students. And we, we felt like we needed and wanted all of their, their stories to help tell the story rather than, you know, just like identifying one student and going on their journey. It takes a village to save the planet. Yeah, that's true. And this is proof of that. And it's incredible to think that this might be the most effective way of actually cleaning up what is a disgusting body of water 
and your film shows that literally if it rains here too much, it doesn't require Hurricane Sandy to to pour tons of feces and other stuff into all kinds of who knows what into the into the water here, which I think if, you know, these students are not even allowed to go in the water for three days after it rains because it's so bad. So it clearly needs to be dealt with, and yet it has not been. So Yeah, it's only a quarter of an inch of rain, <sighs> then it's overflow. It triggers triggers yeah. all the waste, yeah. all the poop yeah. <laughs> from, yeah. from all these— millions of New Yorkers into the harbor. Think about that. Think about so how disgusting, disgusting that is. Yeah. There's points all throughout the harbor where it's just pouring yeah. in and all the drain water and everything, you, th all the trash you throw Ugh. on the streets, all that stuff goes right into the harbor. And here we are surrounded by that. It seems like a little design flaw there, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that's exactly. Yeah. Yeah, like. So how long were you guys on this project from start to finish and how far along the way did it take before you realized sort of the structure and the individuals that were going to be the center of this? I think we were on it for a year and a half, mm -hmm. right? Around that. And it was probably halfway into the edit, you yeah. know, when we tried a number of different ways to tell the story when it kind of, it kind of became clear that, you know, as Roger said, it takes a village. Yeah. By the way, it also took a village. We had a to team of editors, yeah, a team yeah, of producers, sure. all of whom were, you know, trying to help us sort sort it through. And it's also following the seasons and the school year. There's the the actual school year of the students, right. but also the work they do in the summer and and also building these like giant sort of oyster beds and the work they do takes a lot of time and effort and you have to get a lot of permits. Permitting is like a nightmare yeah. for yeah. them. So it's a lot of effort to actually get to the point where you're actually building these giant oyster reefs and that just took time and we wanted to And on top it. of that, logistically, like so from a production point yeah. of view, generally if you're shooting if you're if you're shooting people putting oysters in the water outdoors, like you need good weather or the shoot might be canceled. Yeah. For us, we needed good weather that day and the two day yeah. or three days prior. So it was a production feat. Yeah. Um, a lot of cancels. For shoots. yeah, a lot of a lot of holds and cancels and holds and cancels. And ultimately, you know, something that happen because, you know, I think a lot of filmmaking is putting yourself in the position to get mm -hmm. lucky, to be there to, to, to capitalize on things that are happening. And there is a moment in the film where Pete and Jesse, you know, find oh, yeah. this really exciting piece of uh, oyster, which yeah. is really inspiring piece of information, right. which was that an oyster got there on its got own. there yeah. and it was like it felt like you know it just whoa we did yeah. it we got it it's happening do you ever think you'd be that excited about an oyster no. there you go. Never, yeah. yeah 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 not yeah. if there wasn't champagne right, next exactly. to it. And, and, even, and, and even when they saw the whale in yeah. New York City yeah. Harbor, yeah. which was like, you know, there's marine life coming back yeah. to the, the, the New York City Harbor used to be thriving right. with life. This used to be the oyster. New York, Manhattan was the oyster capital of the world. Yeah, you there would were show people carts. eating it by the bucket out of like hot dog stands. There, there were, were carts on yeah. every corner, yeah. oyster carts. The, yeah. the, you know, the oyster bar is not named the oyster bar for nothing. That's yet. Was, right. That That's was, right. you know, this was a, this was the oyster capital and people, they had Oysters the size of dinner plates that they would eat. It was the main food in the city. So what do you hope that people who see this in a theater are probably in many cases on Discovery? What do you hope they leave it thinking or doing differently? Is it just what's needed here? Does this Governor's Island school 
require financial support? Do they want more recruits? What what can be the best way to help their cause? Well, I think that, you know, not just New Yorkers, but everyone needs to be aware that we have a planet in peril. We have a planet that we are destroying because we are we don't think of the, the world in this sort of circular way that the waste we create and the things we create have to go back into the planet and be and be recycled. And when we when people in New York throw trash, there was mm-hmm. a kid in the film who talked about their parents throwing trash out of the window of their car driving in the Bronx and they said they stopped their parents got out of the car and picked up the mm-hmm. trash so it is the next generation mm-hmm. really they're going to inherit this planet yeah. and they want to save this planet and that we need to support them we need to give them the tools we need to inspire kids to to make a difference but not just kids all of us of need to save the planet we we live on because if because none of this would be possible the oscars yeah. and everything <laughs> would not be possible if we don't have a planet that is yeah. true and yeah. as long as you bring up the oscars i have a question for you roger yeah. because you are one of three people on the academy's board of governors representing the documentary branch yeah and also so you're the chair of the Doc Branch and the Diversity Committee, and you're on the Academy's Education and Outreach Committee and the A2020 Diversity Initiative. You are the overachiever there. I, I know. I know. Don't, don't mess with Roger. No. I, I, and this really, is all, I'm exhausted. I, I bet. So, much, this, so many meetings. This is all also from New York when most of this stuff is happening in L.A. So you're you're on a lot of speaker phone calls i guess i'm yeah well i go to la a lot for uh, meetings but yeah i'm on i am i am on a lot of calls right. i try to go to la when no I can. it's amazing but so i guess the the questions I, I just a couple things about that how would you say the academy's a2020 initiative which is basically about increasing the inclusion of the membership how has that been coming along in your view I can only speak for the DOC branch yes. because I chair the diversity committee there. The DOC branch is way ahead of the other branches, and I could say we're leading the way. We have the most diverse branch mm-hmm. out of all the branches in the academy. In terms of women and in terms race. of of terms of people of color yep. and women, we are hope this year my goal is to reach a fifty fifty gender parity in wow. the DOC branch, which would be just sort of, you know, amazing for to, to do that. First because the world this is the first branch to do that. And the you know, why shouldn't the academy reflect the real world? You know, why shouldn't the especially the doc branch, which has so many women filmmakers mm-hmm. like brilliant William and filmmakers like Christy Jacobson. Mm-hmm. How are we not at 50-50 or 51% really? It doesn't make any sense to me. So for me, it's been a big push. It's been a big, big push internationally to get in- international members. I also head up the um, International uh, Festival Committee in the Doc Branch. So mm-hmm. we have have 26 international film festivals wow. where their features qualify for Academy now. So now we're getting features from countries around right. the world that normally wouldn't qualify because they're not going to play theatrical runs in America. And this is another way to bring in and to engage the world. And also with me, I've sort of diversified the executive committee and brought in international members from around the world to be the to be the people who are making decisions about who to invite about who to invite into the academy. And I hope the doc branch is the shining example for the future of what the academy can be. Absolutely. And just for the record, your other two governors of the doc branch are? 
Rory Kennedy and yeah. Kate Amend, who okay. are both absolutely amazing. I mean, look at the doc branch. We have two incredible women, a, a, an amazing editor, an amazing filmmaker, and, and Rory Kennedy, and an African-American guy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like, we're way ahead. The Board of Governors, when I sit around the table, I'm not seeing a lot of black faces and not mm-hmm. a lot of people of color. What, um, are you one of how many now? Um, there's, um, let's see, uh, Wynn Thomas, Whoopi Goldberg, yeah. myself, Reginald Hudland. I believe that's it. So definitely some room um, for improvement so in the other branches. Yes. There's a lot of work to be done, yeah. but at least the academies doing it. And I I think as an organization, it's important that we lead the way, that we lead the way in Hollywood, that we lead the way to changing Hollywood and and giving opportunities to people who the door has been been closed to. The door had been closed to me and I want to now open the door since I have a seat at the table. I have a seat at the table. The room where it happens. (laughs) The room where it happens. I'm in the room where it happens. And I want to invite other people to the table as well. Well, so... That leads in nicely to the two follow-ups before we move on from this. At the end of June, I believe, your incumbent president, John Bailey, is going to term out, meaning he cannot run for re-election. Then someone else from the Board of Governors is going to have to run for president. Is there any chance that Roger Roth Williams oh, no. might be a candidate? You know, um, I, I, no comment. No, I'm not. No, I mean, you know, I'm in New York. The president of the academy is someone that is, because of CBI, Sherpa and Isaacs, yeah. was very engaged. It's pretty much a full-time job, and you you kind of have to be sort of either retired or in semi-retired in order to, to do that job because that's a lot of, of work. So you're not ready so to think, pack it in yet? I'm not ready to pack it in and move to L.A. Right. Um, you got to wait till the harbor, at least until the harbor is clean. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get the harbor cleaned up right. first. Right. No, but uh, but there's a there's a number of probably amazing candidates who are going to run, and it's really exciting to have new leadership and right. change. And right. I welcome that, and I look forward to see what happens. Final question on that topic is just the board approved a decision a few months ago that is going to pull some of the categories off of being presented on the air. They'll still be presented during commercials, but aired as interstitials coming in or out of the telecast. So they'll still be aired on the telecast. They're just not going to be presented in full. And that in order to meet the other commitment that you guys made, which is it's going to be no longer than three hours, the Oscars telecast, several categories are going to be handled in that way. So, and it looks like it'll be a rotation of which those will be. So for year one of this trial, will documentary feature or documentary short be two of the categories not on the telecast? I don't know. I think that that is up to the producers of the show, Donna and um, Donna Gelati. Uh, So I don't know what the producers are going to choose. I know one thing. I know that documentary feature will always be on the show because I will always fight to make sure that documentary feature is in the broadcast. That is really important. I think that maybe documentary short could go into a rotation. I don't know what year it it would go into that rotation, but documentary feature absolutely it's important i mean documentaries are all look look we had documentaries this year that made over 22 million dollars oh, in the amazing. box office yeah. we have documentaries doing better yeah. than some than some like some of the some like narrative right. films right. so we have documentaries um, you know that make you know we have like won't you be my neighbor and rbg and three identical strangers who are making huge money absolutely. at the box office so it's time the academy you know really 
they, you know, the Force Academy recognizes documentary, but the Academy, I think, understands how important documentaries are to people and how important that it remain part of the show. And Absolutely. I will fight for that as governor and Thank chair you. of I the documentary so, branch. You heard it here. Yes. <laughs> Last question goes to both of you guys and whoever wants to jump first. Will there be another Roger Ross Williams, Chris Jacobson collaboration in the near future or just what is next for you guys? We will work together again. Yes, we will work together again. I'm finishing the Apollo uh, yes. documentary. Awesome, the Apollo um, Theater. Yes. Apollo Theater documentary about the Apollo Theater and working on my first narrative film. Yes. So I'm, uh, I'm. You were just at the Sundance. Sundance lab? Directors Lab. Awesome. I just did the Sundance Directors Lab, which was fun and challenging and amazing. And yeah. I love uh, everyone, Michelle Satter and everyone over there at awesome. Sundance. They have Redford was incredible, just an incredible mentor. Yep. So I'm excited for that next chapter, and I hope Christy and I actually will get to do something together and we will because we'll, we'll always be close because we always have that from that first phone call after I won the Oscar <laughs> till now you know that's a we're bonded forever yeah awesome. yeah and I'm I'm working on uh, a couple of new projects including a new feature that I'm really excited about but can't talk about Got it. and a series and I also just wanted to mention when you asked about sort of the takeaway yeah for take back the harbor I think one of the things that's like a hidden message, if you will, although I'm outing it now, it's yep. just like when we experienced all these kids, like so they're literally from different boroughs. They're from different types of homes. Yep. They're very different. They might have different religions. They all came together because, as Roger said, the planet is in peril. Mm -hmm. And they worked together for that purpose. And I thought, for me, that was like a really important thing to be a part of, to witness myself, to be a part of myself, and to remind people that this is possible, that we're not, you know, we don't need to accentuate our differences as much as we can come together to solve, you know, these kinds of problems. Well, thank you guys for the very interesting information in the film and for coming in today. Appreciate it. Thank you, Scott. Thanks, Scott. And now for my interview with Carrie Mulligan. All right, Carrie, thank you so much for doing this. We appreciate it. Thank you. Absolutely. We always begin with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was born in London and sort of lived there for a couple of years, and then we moved to Germany and then back again when I was seven or eight. And my parents, my dad was a hotel manager, and my mum worked in hotels as well, but stopped working for a little bit when I was a kid. And that was the reason for all the traveling around, the moving mm -hmm. around. Yeah, yeah. So... What is your earliest memory of taking interest in performance of any sort? Quite late, I think, but I was, I think I was six years old. I was at the International School of Dusseldorf in Germany, and my brother was doing a production, a school production of The King and I. Okay. And I remember going with my mum to pick him up from rehearsals one afternoon, quite early into the rehearsals, and... I saw them all up on stage and thought it looked really fun and I was really jealous and I was too young to be in it. I wasn't in the right year, right. but I kicked up such a fuss that they let me in and that was the first play that I ever did, I think. And who is Mrs. J? Mrs. J! Oh, Mrs. J. Mrs. J was my... It's Mrs. Jacobson. She yes. was my teacher at my first primary school when I came back to England when I was eight. And she is this incredible Scottish woman and she's... I was in the, the school choir and the church choir, so she sort of taught me to sing and kind of, yeah, ushered me into 
performing, I guess. Like coming out of your shell a little bit? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, sort of like nudging me in the back, making me sing louder. (laughs) (laughs) So what do you think it was then that you you responded to about performing that made it this growing idea throughout your childhood to the point where, you know, you were wanting to do it professionally by the time you were taking your A-levels? I think literally that it looked like the most fun, you know. I can't remember wanting to do it. It wasn't, you know, I kind of, because you get asked about it and I think I've thought about it a decent amount here and there, but I think it just comes down to the fact that it looked like the most fun thing. It was way more fun than academia and I was, right. you know, I got by in school but I wasn't wildly academic like my brother and it just looked really fun and like it was a great gang to be a part of and I wanted to be a part of it. And yet you're not from a showbiz family didn't know other actors. So what was the mechanism for trying to find out how this all, you know, worked if you wanted to try to get into it? I mean, I had no clue. I was kind of looking at, I mean, I remember I auditioned to be a children's TV presenter when I was 14. (laughs) You know, I was kind of coming at it from all angles. I didn't necessarily, I knew that was the wrong thing, but I didn't know if it would be a pathway into acting. But I mean, really, I wanted to be a musical theatre actress. So I imagined that I would get to the point when I left school where I would just start going to big open castings. And and then I realised that you have to like actually really be able to sing to do that. (laughs) So that was a giant disappointment. But yeah. Was there some letter writing? that occurred oh there was letters oh yes who would have who might still have a copy i mean i'm sure no one has a copy but (laughs) the people i wrote to i mean i wrote to julian fellows he was the person who really kind of helped me right at the beginning i wrote to kenneth branner i wrote to eminem never got a response (laughs) yeah I wrote, I wrote a fan letter to Eminem, really. But. Just about because of the music side, or was he already into movies? He had just done 8 Mile. So that was the, that was the catalyst. I know. <laughs> yeah. But Julian Fellows was, like, it sounds like, the first actor who you actually, or first professional actor who you actually met. People today know him mostly as the guy behind Downton Abbey, but he's also an actor. Yeah. And how did you first come to interact with him, and how did that actually kind of help to get things started? So I was the head of drama at my school, obviously. a massive loser. <laughs> And he came to our school because he knew I had mistress and he came and he gave a talk to the whole school about winning the Oscar for Gosford Park. And so because I was head of drama, I got to sit with him at dinner afterwards. And I said, I want to be an actress. And he said, well, you should marry a banker or a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, cheers. Yeah. Sage advice. But no, but he was he was great. But, you know, we had a really interesting conversation. But then you know, cut to a year later, I had applied to and not gotten into drama school and was headed to go to university and didn't want to go. And so I wrote to him and said, you know, we met and and I'm not really sure how to, you know, I know that I won't last in university because I'll just drop out and waste everyone's time and I want to be an actor, but I don't know any way in. And so he had obviously got lots of these letters and he took me out to dinner with his wife and with about seven other people who'd all written letters who wanted to be writers and directors and actors as well. And they kind of, yeah, I mean, they they sent me off to audition for Pride and Prejudice, basically. I auditioned for Gina J's assistant, Robin. And Robin coached me through the audition because I'd only ever been on stage. So obviously everything I did was huge. And Robin was sort of like gesturing me to do less and less and less. And very luckily I got that job. Right. Just to go back for a second, though, to the applying to drama school. Mm. It sounds like from stuff I've read that like a lot of parents, yours were not thrilled about the idea that you would go into this professionally. And so when you applied, it was sort of a, a covert thing, right? Yeah. And when that did not pan out, 
was that kind of crushing? Because, I mean, that could have dissuaded a lot of people from even continuing to pursue this. It was crushing. I mean, yeah, in my dream version of it, I secretly applied. I went to the audition and I got a place at RADA and I came home and dropped the letter on the table and said, boom, there you go. I'm a genius. And and, and obviously that didn't happen. happen. So I was disappointed, but I also recognised the crazy competition and I knew that I wasn't as good as some of the people. And you watch everyone in lots of these places you sit like at lambda but central i watched 10 other people audition and i saw three other people who were like phenomenally good and you didn't disagree with their no i was like you're quite right i shouldn't come i'm not as good as those people so it sort of made sense to me so i was disappointed because i think you always dream that the the version of it will work out that you imagine but i i wasn't uh, you know it was it seemed it made sense to me and i knew that it wasn't enough to sort of make me quit well so fortunately the the fellow's angle leads to the casting director, which leads to Pride and Prejudice, mm. which just to remind people, you're playing Kitty Bennett, the youngest sister mm. of Elizabeth Bennett, who was played by Kara Knightley. You've also got Rosamund Pike in there. We've recently had Kara and Rosamund on this podcast as mm. well. And talking to them about Pride and Prejudice, it, it sounds like for them, at least, it may never be as good as it was making <laughs> that one. Not in terms of the part or whatever, but just the experience. They, they seem to suggest that you know, to have that many young actresses who all get along, who are spending a summer together, roughly the same age. Everybody, it sounds like, was falling in love with somebody, you know, <laughs> uh, and making a very good movie. Yeah. Is that over romanticizing it or was that really because for your first film role, if that's the case, that that might... no, that really was yeah. that it really was. And actually, I saw Roz last night and when she's we both said that, you know, and it was kind of extraordinary. We were all between 18 and 25 and. And living in these, you know, beautiful country houses and spending our summers running around fields together. And there was something so idyllic about it. And I think it set us up. You know, it was interesting. I then went on my next job as a play at the Royal Court, um, the Kevin Elliott play. And it was really dark and I played a rape victim and I had narcolepsy and... You know, and I didn't, I was like, what is this job? I don't understand. I've just been having barbecues <laughs> all summer. And you know, it was just really odd. And it was right. Katie Mitchell. It was a brilliant, you know, piece of work to be a part of. But it was like, I can't get my head around what this is because Pride and Prejudice was, and nothing will ever be the same as that. Right. Again, that was a really singular experience. So another aspect of that that was special, I think, was that there's another person who's in that movie who you share a scene with, Dame mm-hmm. Judy Dench. <laughs> and... Talk about the role she had played in your imagination prior to working with her and then what the actual experience, you know, was like in comparison. Yeah, I mean, she has been, is, will always be my hero. So I grew up sort of dreaming about working with her. And I remember having vivid dreams about working with her um, and then waking up and realising that I was 14 and that it wasn't, you know, a reality and being really crushed, you know. So she was my favourite, is my favourite actress on the planet. And then, yeah, so bizarrely, day one of rehearsals on Pride and Prejudice, she walks up to me and says, my name's Judy, I believe we have the same agent, (laughs) which we do still today. And I was just like the heck is going on and even on set we came to shoot the first scene with her and it's the scene where she shows up in our house in the middle of the night and it's a big wide shot of the whole family looking at her and joe wright came up to me and was like you are not doing anything with your face you just look you just look shocked Stunned, you yeah. need to do you need to act and i, and I just I, could, I was just lip i was couldn't get right. my head around it yeah it was amazing. amazing yeah so after prime prejudice you had now been in a movie, but it's not like you were yet a movie star. You were doing other things that I just going to mention a few on TV, BBC miniseries Bleak House, 
an episode of Doctor Who that sort of presaged having a female Doctor Who, then some smaller parts in movies like Brothers for Jim Sheridan, which I think was the beginning of you and Jake Gyllenhaal knowing each other, mm-hmm. Public Enemies for Michael Mann. But it sounds like the real turning point was actually on the stage with the seagull playing Nina, the aspiring young actress in that. That was first at the Royal Court, then on Broadway, just like years later, I think, Skylight. Ben Brantley says, actually recently, quote, Ben Brantley, the chief theater critic of the New York Times, says that yours was, quote, the best Nina I've seen, close quote. And David Hare and others had echoed that. How did you come to be cast in such a major part after having not really played big parts anywhere before? Mm. And then also, how did it change the way you approach acting? Because it sounds like from things I've read that, you know, it really did. You're not just going to kind of imagine yourself in, a, in the experience of, or, you know, relate your own experiences to the character. Yeah, I'd worked at the Royal Court before my first play was there, so I would sort of knew that space. I was shooting uh, ITV production of Northanger Abbey with Felicity Jones. Oh, really? <laughs> and so I auditioned for it right before we went off to shoot that. And it was around the time that I'd shot that Doctor Who episode and I went in and I did the audition and I think I went back in again. And yeah, it was it was a completely life-changing experience for me. And, you know, one of my favourite roles I've ever played. I sort of... There was something so romantic about that whole experience. But I think... It was working with Ian Rickson. I think prior to that, everything I'd done, I'd sort of, I'd been kind of winging it, you know, in a way. And just, you know, if I ever had to emote, I would sort of imagine terrible things happening to my family. Or, you know, I just didn't really ever kind of, I suppose I wasn't really creating characters so much as just sort of playing versions of myself. Or I suppose maybe part of you always does that. But with Nina, her experience was so removed from mine. But there were things that I felt a real affinity to. But, you know, she had had a baby and lost the baby and, you know, was living in a garret in, you know, Russia. And um, there were just so many things that I couldn't sort of directly draw experience from. So with Ian, we sort of built this character up. And it was when I started sort of pulling together music and poetry and prose and things to sort of help me build a different life for a character. Was that also, I think that you do collages or something, right? Well, it's more, yeah, it's more sort of like I found lots of amazing sort of images, lots of artwork, Russian poetry. You know, sometimes if you do a long theatre run, and we did eight weeks in London, 16 weeks in New York, I think you sometimes need to have new stories to tell, even when you're saying the same lines over and over again to sort of make it. So that was all part of that, really. Got it. So from that, or I don't know if it was as a result of that or just kind of coincidental, but you get an opportunity to audition for this part of an underage English schoolgirl who is courted by a considerably older guy in Lona Scherfig's An Education 2009. Mm. Had it first cross your radar and was it immediately clear that it was something you really wanted to go after? Yeah, I mean, it was. It was a funny thing because it went on, I think, for more than a year, maybe 18 months, two years. It was sort of around for a while and it had a different director attached. I auditioned for the original director. It had a different name. It was called The Best Time of Her Life. So I'm glad they changed the title. (laughs) And then it went away for a while. And then I think it came back and they were talking to me. They were saying, well, maybe you should come in and audition for Helen. Maybe you've aged out of that role. The one that Rosamund eventually played. Which is the part that Rosamund played. Um, But I went back in for Jenny and I read with Peter. I mean, I loved it and I was so excited to do it. But it just felt like... You know, it didn't feel like a giant leap from the stuff I'd been doing. And I'd never played a lead in a film before. But my expectation for that film was like maybe a a week at the Mayfair Curzon. You know, I didn't imagine it would ever get seen. So I didn't feel any kind of pressure doing it. And it was so fast and, you know, but yeah, it was an amazing experience. Did the fact that 
you were in it or Rosman was in it. I don't what came first because I think Rosman was saying you guys were you living with her and Joe Ray at the time that you were auditioning or something. She said you were like kind of trying to f- figure out a way to survive in L.A. on buses or oh, something. Oh, yeah, I did live with them for a bit. Yeah, I lived with them for a while, like a month, I think. And I was. That was my bus time, <laughs> my infamous the, bus time. I don't think you concluded that it's a viable option, right? Yeah. Well, you know, I made it. It was actually good because I didn't know anyone here apart from them. So, right. I, you know, it was a kind of handy way to fill a day because right. you can, you know, spend like a day going to two meetings right. if you're on the bus. <laughs> yeah, so I did. I lived with them for a bit. I think it was around. It's kind of hard to remember. I remember Joe was, I remember Joe doing, a read like a read through of the soloist in his living room and i handed out the scripts and was making tea um <laughs> not reading any not reading it no. No, I was not, not invited to oh, be an actor God. in that no <laughs> yeah so i think it must have been around that time. i came on board first i think and then Roz came on and Roz and dominic came on kind of quickly after right. and then it all came together right very fast when it actually happened so while I know the film makes point of showing that your character is a willing and eager participant in everything that happens in this relationship, especially the physical stuff, mm. I still can't help but wonder if that movie would even get made today in the post Me Too. What do you What do you think? Yeah, I mean, do you know what? I haven't thought about that. Yeah, maybe not. I don't know. It's hard to. There were definitely things that you know people cringed about and felt uncomfortable about. You know, even at the time. I suppose it's interesting to look at those uncomfortable things, though. I mean, I think it would be a shame if we started editing right. those things out because they are truthful. And she was not in jeopardy. Um, and she was. She had agency, and she was making choices. I mean, some of them were misguided, but we all make misguided choices. So I would be. I'd be concerned if we started not telling stories about sort of, you know, mistakes. Unpleasant things, yeah. yeah. So the movie debuts at Sundance, goes over very well there, thanks largely to your performance, sells for $3 million, which is a lot of money for an indie, two Sony classics, I think, mm-hmm. you know, Oscar noms for picture and yourself and all kinds of stuff. And suddenly you are the it person. And we actually, the only prior time I think that I'd done a, like a proper sit down interview with you was in February 2010. I pulled up the transcript. This was in the midst of your that evening where you and other breakthrough actors were being honored at the Santa Barbara International Film Festival Uh in your green room there, I guess. And I pointed out at that time that the last time a youthful looking 24 year old with a short haircut got a Best Actress Oscar nomination for her first leading role in a film Mm. in which she meets a man who helps her to escape from the only life she's ever known Mm. and see the world anew before returning to where she came from. That person was Audrey Hepburn for Roman (laughs) Holiday. So, and people were actually often at that time comparing you to her and to Gene Seberg and to others. Just how did you handle that whole moment where it was all starting to blow up, I guess, just personally and professionally? You know what the problem was? I think I just took it all way too seriously. I mean, I didn't buy any of that. Like that all just felt crazy. (laughs) And, you know, and I, I felt sort of clumsy. And when people compare you to Audrey Hepburn, it's the only thing that can make you feel worse about yourself. (laughs) Because the the drastic, vast difference between me and Audrey Hepburn is, you know, evident. Do you know what? It was amazing because it got me the opportunity to work with directors and opened up doors to jobs that I would never have had any access to. I think probably in retrospect, I'd go back and be like, 24-year-old me, relax, it's a red carpet, don't cry about it. (laughs) Um, Nobody cares tomorrow whether you fall over or not or if you say something stupid, like there's bigger things in life. But I did not feel that way at the time. I felt sort of 
freaked out by the whole thing and felt like, what am I doing in a room with these people? This was Colin mad. Firth kind of your buddy through that? Colin Firth and I, Colin Firth was my, yeah, he was my bodyguard and protector and everything else. Yeah. I think that was that season he was going with a single man. So you guys, so in terms of what came about directly as a result of an education, I think the first thing was Never Let Me Go, mm. where you're back with Kira. Mm. People like to claim credit for things that they didn't, do often i don't know so i don't know if this is true but i read something where peter rice who was then the head of fox searchlight now runs all of fox said that it was his idea to have mark romanic reach out to you about being in that i guess he was in the middle of watching an education and knew that mark needed to was having a hard time casting this part of kathy h how do you remember it coming about no that's true that is yeah he emailed mark during the screening i think Really? Or just after it finished in Sundance. And, and it was like, a, it was really, it was like two weeks later, I think, that I met Mark, I think in New York, and read for Kathy. So, yeah, that's accurate. And so at, the, at that time, the only people that would have seen your work in education would have been the people that saw it at Sundance. Yeah, yeah, people who were in there, yeah. 2011, just a year after Never Let Me Go, which went over really well, Toronto and all these, you know, on the festival circuit again that you had done with in education. Now you had a crazy year with two that I've got to ask you about. This character of Irene in, in Nicholas Winning Refn's Drive and then Sissy in Steve McQueen's Shame, mm. not to mention Off-Broadway, Throw Glass Darkly. Mm. Let's start with Drive. This movie just oozes coolness. It's, it's I think people think it's the coolest thing. I agree. And it's you as a mother raising her kid while her husband's in jail. Ryan Gosling's this enigmatic guy who shows up on the scene, comes into their lives, premiered at Cannes, has become very loved, but it's also, I would imagine on paper, hard to explain what that movie ended up being. It's a mm. very stylized, very, I mean, I'm just thinking about the scene in the elevator where he mm. slow-mo, like, push, I think, kisses you and pushes you back and mm. somebody's head gets bashed <laughs> in and it's insane. So how did you know that this was actually worth aligning yourself with? Oh, I just wanted to work with Nicholas. I think I'd seen Bronson and I was completely blown away by Bronson and I saw Valhalla Rising and uh, that was it. I just wanted to do whatever he was doing next. And and then when I found out that he was doing that, I went and auditioned for it. Shame was another one that I think you really went after. Just to remind people, it's one of like the the I guess ballsiest would not be the best word to use in this context, <laughs> but it's a very ballsy movie. <laughs> NC-17, look, it's sex addiction, centers on two very messed up siblings who, you know, everybody has their issues, but these guys have some pretty serious issues. Mm-hmm. One of them played by Michael Fassbender and then the other played by you. Fassbender and McQueen were coming off of Hunger together. Was that the appeal for you of this or why? I mean, I read that you really went after that one. Yeah, I did. I mean, I read it and I just thought it was so brilliant. And I thought Steve was so brilliant. I think I just, she seemed like such a tricky, tricky character to figure out. And there was so much complexity to her. And I didn't know what her story was. And I was so fascinated by her relationship with her brother. And I didn't think Steve would let me do it. I thought, you know, he would sort of see me in an education, see me in Bleak House or North Angrabi and these like kind of more polite period dramas and I you know but I felt like I had I could do that part and I I was conscious of not becoming a British actress who just wears corsets and and I I didn't want that so yeah so I kind of I remember we had coffee and and he kept on sort of 
calling an end to the meeting and saying like, well, cool, it was nice to meet you. <laughs> I kept saying, well, but no, but just thing is, though, <laughs> just if you just hang on for a minute, because I and then like scrambling to try and think, think of something else. To say. To get rid of well, you. I think he was like, you know, he'd, you know, I don't know if he'd sort of made up his mind or maybe he hadn't. But in my mind, I was like, the longer he stays here, the better chance I have of getting this gig. And so in the end, he said, I've got to go to a meeting. And I was like, oh, where's your meeting? And he said, I'm going to Soho. I was like, no way, I'm going to Soho. I'll come with you. Right. <laughs> so we got in the same taxi. Yeah, it was kind of harassing. Did you end up with a tattoo as a result of that meeting? Uh, yeah, I did. Why, what is that about? Well, we, we were sort of, you know, I think he was quite challenging in a way. And I love that about Steve. And he was like that when we filmed together. And I, I think it's part of what makes him such an incredible director is he just challenges you constantly and doesn't ever let you rest on your laurels. And he was sort of challenging me about what I wanted to do and how I wanted to kind of expand. And, and I was talking, I think I ended up talking a lot about Nina and what I found so exciting about Nina was that the difficulty of that character, she's just, it's just a really difficult character to pull off. And I felt like I sort of... I never cracked it, but I felt like what I loved so much was trying to crack the nut. And so I said, you know, and in fact, I think I'm going to get a tattoo. And he was like, are you? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, go on, then get your tattoo. And I was like, OK. <laughs> and if and you I, do, yeah. then he was going to, that well, was like basically it, the deal it, it, sealer. Was, I don't know if it ever would have made a difference. But, you know, there was just something sort of, like, he's he's provocative and, right. and challenging. And, and, and that's, I think, what gets this incredible kind of energy out of people in his work. We just had him on here a couple of weeks ago. And one of the things I asked him about, I want to ask you about as well to me it was the most thought-provoking scene in the film fastbender's character returns to his apartment busts into the bathroom thinking he's confronting an intruder mm. only to find it's you his sister who he had lent a key to his character and yours sort things out while you are still completely naked they're not attempting to cover yourself up which is not exactly the way most siblings would handle the situation mm. and it raised two questions in particular for me so first on a Carrie Mullion level, was that a scene that you had to really deeply consider when you were deciding whether or not to go after this? And then on a character level, what did you decide in your own mind that scene reflected about those siblings' relationship? So on a me level, I didn't know. I didn't think about it really. I mean, it wasn't a decision. It was part of the job. And I, Steve's an artist and he's, of all the directors in the world, he would be, you know, someone I would trust the most in that situation. So it never felt... It never felt like anything, you know, I'm very cautious of things like that. I'm I'm not keen. I mean, I won't wear a bikini on a beach, you know. I'm I'm really not kind of inclined to do that kind of stuff. And I don't think believe in anything gratuitous on film. I'm really kind of deliberate about that. But with this character, it felt like, well, yeah, that's who she doesn't give a shit. And that's her, you know, that's how she feels about her body for good or ill. Like she doesn't, she's not going to cover herself up. And this isn't about looking a certain way. And in fact... I spent weeks before with kind of eating whatever I wanted to, <laughs> drinking beer, like doing whatever, because she was an alcoholic and right. she didn't care about how she looked. And so there was something actually kind of remarkably freeing about not playing someone who didn't care. And just. But is it more than not caring? Is that the way that those characters handle that situation? Is that something that to you suggested that they had a history of incest or sexual abuse or did you have to figure that out in your own mind? I mean, I think we had, you know, we had conversations between us, me and Michael and Steve about it. I, I mean, I don't think it was incest necessarily, but certainly they came from damaged past. You know, they were certainly, I think there's sort of backstory of abuse there and, you know, a sort of blurring of boundaries because of that. But I didn't feel it was ever a relationship between the two of them. Right. How about the, the one other scene I've got to ask you about is just, 
I think it'll be in every tribute reel to you till the end of time is the the scene with the slowed down, stripped back, haunting <laughs> rendition of New York, New York. It goes on for like five minutes. Yeah. Most of it is you in a close up, except for some cutaways to Michael's character displaying emotion for the first time in the film. I guess, again, for you doing it and then also the significance of it, what do you understand it to be? Yeah, I mean, I think doing it was kind of amazing. I was so that was probably more nerve wracking than being naked for the first scene because it was so exposing and it was all held in one shot. Um, so we shot it, I think, I don't know, five or six times, one take. Mm-hmm. And we shot everything live. So it was always going to be kind of very sort of scary. And, and I loved prepping for it. It was great getting to work with, you know, a composer and to spend the time sort of doing singing lessons and all that. Thing. I think it was the only way that they she kind of is able to communicate with him. And the only time he really receives it because he's so happy to block her out all right. the time and, and sort of put her down and ignore her and push her off. And this felt like she's got his attention. There's no one, there's no hiding now that she could, it's the only way she can sort of tell him how she's feeling. <laughs> it was amazing. It Later on in that, we finished that and, I, and it was done. And I, you know, breathed a huge sigh of relief. And then Steve came up to me and said, so she can't just have sung one song. So you need to, you need to sing another song. I said, all right, well, what do you want me to sing? And he was like, oh, I don't know, but it can't be anything anyone knows and it can't be a song that's been written or anything because we can't get the rights. So you want you to just make up a so song? So he was like, and I was like, all right, so you would just like me to make up a song? He was like, yeah, you're an artist, aren't you? So just make up a song. And so, you know, again, I was like, oh, all right. Oh, man. Uh, so then I sort of made up two lines of like the worst jazz song you've ever heard in your life and sang that and then finished that. That was just like a transition into like as if she was, was going that, on to the was, next. And before she moved and she sits down right. and has the conversation with Michael. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's interesting. Yeah. So I guess probably no more innocent young girl roles after that. Um, but the next thing that happened, I think, would have been a different sort of movie than anything up to that point, different scale, where you, a Brit, beat out every big name actress in Hollywood for the part of one of the most iconic American characters there is, Daisy Buchanan in, in The Great Gatsby, which Baz Luhrmann was doing here. This is sort of the great American novel, this showman is going to do, a, again, a very stylized version of. Why did you want it and what did you have to do to get it? I wanted to work with Baz and I wanted to work with Leonardo and I thought the book was incredible. I'd never read the book. It's not mandatory reading in the UK like it is here. And so it was. I, I kind of discovered the book in the same time as auditioning for that and I fell completely in love with the book. And the audition was amazing. I had so much fun. It was you with Leo. It was me with Leo and it was Baz and Baz's, you know, and he had like cameras and, you know, he was taking photos and there were like three different cameras and it was so fluid and fun. It was like doing theatre and and then I went back in, I think the next day or the day after that and they put me in full hair and makeup and we did like this little mini photo shoot, me and Leo. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, it was like completely surreal, like utterly surreal. And how about a little daunting though i mean just to know that it's such a famous property people have in their minds who these characters are what they look like the prior version had not really been successful decades earlier here it's going to be you with you know sort of the person who i think most people imagine today when they think of a movie the Mm. biggest movie star leo Mm. with all of this huge budget and scale riding on you guys Mm. was it at all intimidating to get involved with oh my gosh yeah yeah. i mean but like i was completely 
blown away. And and I went into the audition weirdly not that nervous because I thought like there's no way in hell I'm going to get this. So I may as well just have fun acting with Leonardo DiCaprio <laughs> right, for an hour. Right. Like that's, yeah. you know, what an experience. So yeah, it was. It was. But Baz is incredible at making people feel comfortable. And so is Leo. Like to be the biggest movie star on the planet, but also, you know, you feel like you're on stage with an actor who's been sort of plugging it away playing. You know, he's so committed. Right. It's amazing. And never once did I feel like, you know, you know, there is an old sort of thing where, you know, if you're not on camera, there's some part of you that probably gives about 10% less <laughs> because you know that you're not being filmed. Right. But he doesn't do that. Right. Like if he's off camera, he's doing exactly what he did, if not more than he did when he was on. It's interesting um, to say that because when Margot was saying that about her audition for yeah. Wall Street, just that you don't expect that from even a lesser actor. No, but no. And yeah. it, so it's incredible. So it was, yeah, it was amazing to work with him. So how about the type of work that you do in a movie that's of that size? Is it as possible to protect and sort of be as specific with a performance when you have so much else going on around you, such a giant machine as you can do on a indie? I don't know. You know, this was different in that it was the first time I'd ever been required to sort of look a certain way. I think I'd never really had to play someone who was sort of the subject of or the object of anyone's desire I'd always sort of played well that was never really important before so I think I probably felt an added that was there was probably a self-awareness to that for me but then she's very self-aware so I think sometimes these things can help you even though they feel like problems at the time I mean certainly you know there's a huge machine going on around you but Baz again like the way that he works is very creative it doesn't feel you know, he makes an environment and then allows you kind of play. It just feels very real because you're surrounded by literally hundreds of people. But, yeah, I probably felt like somewhat dwarfed by it on occasion when I allowed my kind of insecurities to come into it. But the experience as a whole was incredible. And watching it, was it fun? I remember the... I haven't covered Cannes every year, but that was my first time ever at Cannes. Mm. And the opening night was you guys. Mm. It was pouring, but it was just <laughs> this whole big... Like the movie, just a very splashy yeah. whole event. And yeah. I wonder... You know, to see yourself in that kind of a movie for the first time might be kind of cool. Well, I remember about two years later being in London and going for a run. And I can't remember why, but my mind sort of wandered to that. And I thought, I can't believe I was in that film. It's so <laughs> weird. And like, it's still weird right. that I was in that film. And I, yeah, so it, it, I think there was something so standing on the red carpet with Leo and Toby and Baz and, you know, and being as a cast, that incredible cast was was totally surreal. And even now it sort of feels like otherworldly to, right. you know. That same year was a very different scale movie, but with another great, in this case, filmmakers, plural, with the Coen brothers inside Lewin Davis. You're playing not a huge part, but this woman, Jean, a folk singer who is very pissed at the loser who may have knocked her up. It's not clear <laughs> whether it was him or somebody else. Sometimes, obviously, movies get made and then released in different orders. But was that a response or were the movies that came after Gatsby, a response to Gatsby, like let's hunker down and go back to some more smaller scale. That's actually, stuff. I came over for, I came over to LA for, I think something like the Hollywood Awards or something for shame. Yeah. And, and it was that weekend I flew over from Sydney. I was shooting Gatsby and I did an audition tape in my, in my hotel room for the Coen brothers. And so I got it. I got the job when I was shooting Gatsby and I wrapped Gatsby like the February, jumped on a plane, went to New York and recorded the soundtrack for inside Lewin Davis and then I think shortly after we shot so I lit I took off my sort of blonde daisy wig and put on my jean wig right, and right. was swearing you know like a trooper and that was amazing that was I mean I never 
in a million years imagined I would be in a Coen Brothers film. It felt like a totally different and somehow very American and maybe yeah. just sort of an inaccessible to a British actor or I felt yeah, like it yeah, was yeah. to me and particularly in that kind of part. <laughs> but yeah, it was, I mean, it was just amazing and, uh, and to work with Oscar again because I'd yeah. worked with Oscar on Drive and then right, worked right, from right. that. That is one of, I think, one of their best movies. I, yeah, love, I love, love that. But beyond that then, was it a, I mean, you haven't gone and done, unless I'm blanking, another kind of, Gatsby scale, big studio, glossy movie. Not that there's anything wrong with with those mm-hmm. in, in in many cases, but is that just the way it's worked out, or is that a deliberate thing on your part? I think it's kind of maybe a, a bit of both. I mean, Gatsby was a big glossy studio thing, but it also had like complete integrity and a brilliant story and unbelievable cast and you know a genius director. So it was sort of budget scale wise you know a big movie but it was also felt very kind of artistic at the center of it and I think probably I haven't found that same combination again since then so it's it's not a case of avoiding the size of a film it's more just finding the right kind of part within it like there hasn't been the right role right necessarily so continuing to move towards the present there was a movie that I in 2015 that I did not I'll be honest, expect to like. And then I really did a lot. And that is Far From the Madding Crowd. It was a remake of the 67 version with Julie Christie, which was, of course, also both adapted from the Thomas Hardy 1874 novel. You're playing Bathsheba, Bathsheba, I don't remember how you say it, Everdeen, who probably the reference for most people today is she's the namesake of Katniss uh, <laughs> yep. in the Hunger Games. But I just thought it was, I mean, Vinterberg to come from the hunt, Yeah, I think a year earlier, which is one of the darkest and unbelievable movie, but like you would never believe if somebody showed a doubleheader that it was the same guy that made this lush, beautifully shot kind of feminist movie. And I guess I just wonder what convinced you that he could make such a leap and also to go and do another British period piece costume drama when, you, like you said, you kind of wanted to avoid those. Well, I suppose I wasn't I wasn't looking for him to make that much of a leap because I feel like Thomas Hardy is dark and he's not Jane Austen. And a lot of the content, like, there's some crazy stuff happens in that book. And so I wasn't looking for him to make a giant leap. And I think, you know, his aesthetic, he had the same incredible cinematographer, Charlotta, on both. And so I think there were lots of things that I really wanted to for him to retain for that film. So I was excited to work with him because I thought, I mean, I, I remember walking out of the hunt and just being speechless yeah. for literally literally 20 minutes like I just couldn't talk I just thought it was so incredible so I wasn't looking to do a period drama at all but I couldn't pass up the opportunity to work with him because I thought he was just completely brilliant so yeah and I and I loved it it was sort of a completely romantic magical time filming in Dorset in this stunning landscape and these brilliant male actors that I was getting to work with and I wonder if this is coincidental but you know that's a very as a kind of reference a second ago very I don't know what the word feminist aware, obviously it's pre-feminism, mm. but aware character, mm. as is another one that you did that year, Suffragette, for where you're playing a working class woman who at a great personal cost reluctantly joins the British women's rights movement in the early 1900s. Mm. Was there a point here somewhere along the way where you decided, you know, it's not only the part itself, but it's what it says socially that's important to say or is it just happens that because i know that you in your own life have been outspoken about some of these things so is that 
just being drawn into those conversations because you made the movies or were the conversations what led you to the movies? I think they are the most interesting parts. And I loved the idea of Bathsheba being a kind of woman out of her time. And in fact, when that book was released, it was panned by the critics because, you know, a Victorian audience felt that she was such an un well unlikable unlikable but unrealistic (laughs) unrealistic character because of course a woman wouldn't behave like that which i kind of loved about it so yeah i think that was attractive and suffragette really i just couldn't fathom that no one had told that story i think a hundred years down the line and a woman threw herself in front of a horse and died and hundreds of women went on hunger strike and died so that we could have the the right kids taken away or had their their children taken away or abused by the police or countless other things and we'd never talked about it and i couldn't believe i mean it's so ripe for filmmaking i couldn't believe it hadn't been told so i think there was you know there's obviously a part of you i felt sort of my feminism sort of reignited by working on that and not least because i was surrounded by women making it and we all sat there and looked around and as you know it was the first time i'd had other actresses to work with since pride and prejudice you know really i mean kira and i will never let me go but a group of actresses to be around including Meryl Streep including Meryl Streep that may people may have heard of her (laughs) so and the the third and final thing I'll ask about 2015 is something that I and my mom who's back there went and saw and loved on Broadway Mm -hmm. which is Skylight a revival with Bill Nye who had been in the original by David Hare again Royal Court to Broadway Let's just go over what what you deal with here. I mean, again, a sort of socially outspoken character cooking a meal, I think a full meal every performance (laughs) while hiding the fact that you were pregnant. That's got its own complexities, too. Yeah. So I was Tony nomination, by the way. I wasn't pregnant in London, thank okay, God. Right, right. Um, but no, we did it in London. And we actually did it at the Wyndham's in London. So we were in the West End. And yeah, I remember P- Bill came into rehearsals on day one off book. Yeah. And I'd just come off, I think I'd just come off suffragette. I didn't know any of the words. <laughs> and I had to learn how to cook spaghetti bolognese in real life because I'm a terrible cook. <laughs> and then also to do it in the show. And I had to make spaghetti bolognese on stage every night. Yeah, and we had so much fun. I mean, it was the best job ever. And then we took it to Broadway the following year. And I was pregnant. And I told Stephen Doldry and David Hare in rehearsals when we were re-rehearsing the show in London that I was pregnant and <laughs> they were very nice about it. I think David went white. But well, I was, Rudin probably had some thoughts too, I right? I think he probably did. But I actually, I was so lucky because I managed to sort of vaguely keep it under wraps until right. about the last two weeks of the show. Right. Well, you were nice enough to do our Tony's Actress Roundtable that year that we did in New York. And I think it was Helen Mirren and a whole group of amazing people Mm. and one of the things that we brought up was just how people how they react to entrance applause and then also how they deal with the end of their show Mm. and i remarked upon the fact that at the end of that show because it's basically this two-hander where it's i'm sure very draining Mm. you did not look like the happiest camper by the (laughs) edit by the by the bows and i wonder though you know that is these things eight times a week i think in that case, I don't even remember if there was an intermission. I forget. There uh, was, yeah. There yeah, was, yeah. not for the most recent. But, yeah. I mean, why subject yourself to that? I ask myself that same question <laughs> sometimes, sort of halfway through the run. I mean, it's just my favorite thing in the world to do, and I miss it when I don't do it. And it's what I wanted to do when I was little, so it feels like wish fulfillment to get to do it. It's complete escapism and my favorite thing in the world i'm sort of never really happier than when i'm working on stage so i pine for it if i go too long without doing it and there's kind of nothing really like it sort of 
you know, I don't think you can immerse yourself in the same way when you're on set being filmed. And so it's, yeah, it's just my favorite thing. Nice. Well, the last pre-wildlife movie that I'm going to ask you about is one that came out last year and really had a lot of people talking and probably got seen by way more people than we'll ever know because it was streamed through Netflix, Mm. which you're reaching like Antarctica with that. (laughs) So that is Mudbound for Dee Reese, another female filmmaker. You've had worked with several, Lona, Sarah Gavron with Suffragette, Dee, and I'm sure I may be forgetting others. Just what was the appeal here, playing a very unhappily married woman on a southern farm in the years before and after World War II? I mean, I, I thought it was a fascinating time in American history, and I, I didn't, I hadn't sort of seen it in that way before. I couldn't imagine heroes coming home from war and being treated any less than heroes just because of the colour of their skin. It was so shocking to think about. And I thought Dee was such an incredible filmmaker, and I loved Pariah so much. I thought yeah. it was such a good film and such clear, brilliant storytelling, such honest performances. And so I just sort of saw Pariah and thought she's going to make a really good film next and I really want to work with her on it. I probably would have made tea to be on that yeah. film. So, yeah, it was just to be... It was, I suppose it wasn't initially the role, really. I mean, I, I really enjoyed playing the role and I worked with fantastic actors, but it was more experience of being part of one of, you know, a vision of Dee's and working with Rachel Morrison, who was incredible. Right. yeah. First female ever nominated for Best Cinematography yeah. Oscar. Yeah. And may get it again this year for Black Panther. So oh, that's amazing. She should do. Yeah. And the final pre-wildlife thing is about the theater again, because this year, actually, I think it may have, I guess we're, we're both London and New York this year, yeah, off-Broadway. Say, yeah. yeah, for Dennis Kelly's Girls and Boys, one-woman show, 100 Uninterrupted Minutes, going to some pretty dark places. If people didn't see it, they can listen to it on Audible. What made it worth it to you to put yourself through that particular theatrical challenge and then also if you would care to share i know that you've talked on late night a a little bit but it's not actually funny at all you had to talk about suffering for art you had a shitty thing happen (laughs) on the first preview night so i'll leave that i mean it was you know i think i'd read a couple of one woman shows before and the writing had never been you know it's a daunting prospect to be on the stage on your own and i'd never read anything that sort of had the strong enough writing to convinced me and I read Dennis's play and I was literally a week away from having my second kid and obviously the play two kids deals with that and so I I was kind of initially worried that it was first of all too early to get back to work with my son but also that it just touched on stuff that was sort of too close to home with having two children but I met Dennis and I just thought Dennis was so incredibly smart and wonderful and clever and Lindsay's such a great director and the Royal Court is really my favorite place in the world to work so I did it and I found it absolutely terrifying and I, the rehearsal process was really, really hard and a week before we went on I still didn't know all the words and I remember getting to the first dress rehearsal and I did about half the play and then I called it off and kind of sort of took a minute and then I realised that I couldn't do the show if I was wearing shoes and that I had to take my shoes off. Why does that affect things? I don't Because there was a kind of choreography to it that you needed to be kind of nimble on your feet and it didn't feel... You could, because, uh, you know, I was sort of doing a monologue and then the curtain would go up and I would be interacting with these invisible children that the audience couldn't see and miming, picking them up and feeding them and carrying them around the room. And there was something about doing that in shoes that just felt really wrong. But anyway, when I took my shoes off, 
suddenly I could kind of do it and yeah. it was fine. And then I loved the, the run in London. And I mean, it's like a tightrope walk doing a one man show. You kind of can't quite believe you've got to the other side without falling off. And then we took it to the Minetta Lane in New York. And on the first preview, <laughs> it was one of the last transitions of the play where I'm, I had to push a stroller back into the set behind me and, and then turn around and carry on with the monologue in the blackout. And the curtain, there was a mistiming and the curtain came down and hit my head. Um, it was like a wooden or steel? Or... It's a yeah, wooden sort of canvas thing, but um, 300 pounds counterweighted. Oh, so it hit me on the head and I was so shocked that I just, you know, and it was in the blackout. So I just turned around and smoothed my hair and carried on. And I did the last 20 minutes of the show. And then when I came off, it was just this pounding pain and pressure in the top of my head and Bradley Cooper had so sweetly come to see the first preview because he was leaving town and he couldn't stay and I, you know he's come to see my work before he's always incredibly supportive but you know I don't really know him all yeah. that well and anyway so my dressing room was this sort of you know it was tiny the Manetta Lane yeah. and you know it's a sofa and a dressing table and then it's not even a it's just a wall partition but there's no full wall and so I was sort of sitting on the floor crying about my head and he was sitting on the other side this is after the, this is after the show yeah. yeah and he was sitting on the sofa outside and I was sort of crying on the floor saying my head hurts so much and finally I kind of knew he was there and yeah. I had to acknowledge it so I said like Bradley yeah. please come and he came down and he was like a doctor <laughs> and he took me to the emergency room but then I was concussed for about two and a half weeks afterwards oh, so we cancelled four shows to sort of get me back on my feet and then basically all I could do for the first two weeks of the run was the show so I couldn't look at my phone watch tv read a book or do really anything during the day because right. I needed kind of my brain to work to remember all the words right. and you know so yeah that was an interesting start you're, you're better I'm better. Yeah. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Jesus. Well, all right. So that brings us to something that must have been filmed before any of that. Yeah. Because it premiered at Sundance in January. That is Wildlife, adapted from Richard Ford's 1990 novel, co-written for the screen by Zoe Kazan and Paul Dano, directed by Paul Dano. I think first film is director. Mm. You're playing Jeanette, a young wife, mother of a teenager. Mm. In 1960, Montana, you and Zoe and Paul and you and Jake all go back a lot, right? Yeah. So I met Zoe. Zoe and I played Masha and Nina, respectively, 10 years ago this autumn in The Seagull. Yeah. And I met Paul then as well. And then I met Jake shooting Brothers, Brothers, I think not long after that. And did you always know this was a story that Paul and Zoe wanted to tell how did you first hear that it was coming together no I had no idea I mean I'd said to Zoe for years you know because she's such a brilliant writer and she'd written so many great plays and screenplays and I said to her like we've got to do something else together so I was every time we hung out I'd always sort of tease her about writing something that we could do together be in together but I had no idea about wildlife and yeah it was like two years ago and Paul called me up and he said I'm going to send you a script and just read it and you know let me know if you like it whatever and he sent it to me and I read it and called him back about 90 minutes later and said thank you for offering me this job yes please do you know um, why Paul sent it to you why he sent it yes. to me I'll read you a little quote here if, if the okay. answer he said this was one of his recent interviews quote having seen Carrie on stage versus certain film roles I think part of the impulse was it would be really fun to see Carrie be a lot messier close quote <laughs> What do you think that means? Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, I think the Coen brothers said something similar about having me swear and be <laughs> kind of moody. But I think Paul's seen more of my stage work, which is probably more in that kind of messy zone. I don't know. I think I couldn't believe he'd entrusted me with it, to be honest. I thought she was such a difficult, interesting part. I felt very lucky to have gotten the opportunity to do it at all. So it was immediate. I just said immediately yes. And, and not long after that, it all kind of came together. 
a big topic of discussion. We did a Q&A after one of the screenings of this movie. I know it's come up elsewhere. Is the likability or not of this character, quote-unquote, likability. She does some things that mm. not many women are shown doing in movies mm. without having to face some sort of comeuppance mm. through the years. I know you sort of bristle at the likability thing, so I want to ask you about that. But for you, do you have to find something to like or relate to about a character in order to play her? Yeah, I think so. I think I have to empathise with all the parts that I play. I've never not liked any of them. I mean, I really like Jean in Inside Lewin Davis. I think she's hilarious. Um, and I actually never thought about whether people like or don't like a part. And I, I kind of lean into the unlikable things. I like the unlikable things about Bathsheba because that's all, you know, we all have slightly crap aspects to our personality as much as we try and pretend that we don't. And that's what makes us real human beings. So I didn't really think about whether Jeanette was likeable or not. I suppose that's why it came as quite a shock when people started shouting at me in Q&As. <laughs> How could you do this? Yeah. Kind of Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> yeah, where's Jake? They were right. all, that guy was very keen to see what Jake was, right. which is hilarious. So beyond studying the script by Paul and Zoe and speaking to them about it, did you feel there was anything that you could or should do to prepare to play this one? It's a funny kind of thing. I mean, no, I suppose is the short answer. Maybe I the kind dancing. Of, <laughs> the, bit, the bit of cha-cha dancing. Right, right. I mean, I understood the period to a degree. It's something, you know, I had done a couple of 60s films, a couple right. of 50s films, right. so I kind of knew that time period relatively well. But no, I think, you know, also I had a luxury of time before I had two kids and I had one then, but, you know, I suppose with the short period that we had between the film being greenlit and us going, there was not like vast amounts of time to a right. huge amount. I had a one-year-old, so... Right. In retrospect, I wonder if there was something kind of freeing and, and fun about actually not being bogged down by too much Sorry, research so, and yeah. stuff. Yeah. But I guess, not that this would be research, but in your own mind, did you at least have to resolve, in order to place somebody who's essentially falling out of love with her husband, mm. do you have to understand what caused her to fall in love with him in the first place? Yeah, and actually, Jake and I figured a lot of that stuff out over text message because oh, we're yeah. professionals. <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? I think Daniel Day-Lewis and Sally Field did that prepping for Lincoln. They were in character texting. Yeah. yeah. So Jake and I were like texting each other about our wedding and stuff because he wasn't with us in Montana when we started shooting. Right. But no, but, you know, joking aside, the logic of the choices that she made, I had to be completely clear on. And that was something that we did work out broadly before we started shooting and then we kind of finessed it as we went through. And I can explain to you like scene by scene why she's doing what she's doing because I think if you play someone out of control but you don't know what you're doing it can be a complete mess so every choice that she makes in that film made perfect sense to me before I did it I'm sure Bill Camp doesn't want any answers he's just happy it happened <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> all right so you said that actually the scariest part was acting in front of people that you've known so long and mm. so well I mean I guess you'd done that with Kira mm. Isn't it funny that, you know, you can go and act knowing that any untold number of thousands or, you know, larger number of people are going to see it, but you care about the four people that are it's there with the, it? It's the same in theatre. I, I can't right. ever know if anyone is in the audience because I, <laughs> um, I'm terrible. If I, I had it with Tom Sturridge on Far From the Madding Crowd as well because Tom and I have known each other since right. we were 18 and that felt very weird to act in front of him. But yeah, and also it was like, you know, with Paul... 
as a director, I, I genuinely felt like Paul could do a pretty good job of playing Jeanette. Like, he's such a good actor. <laughs> so on day one, I was like, oh, man, I don't even know if this is, you know, you should do this. I'm completely <laughs> messing it up. So it was because Paul is such, and Zoe, they're both such extraordinary actors, as well as having their other skills that I felt that felt intimidating. But actually, I got over that pretty quickly, and then it was really fun. Had you ever been directed by another actor before? I'm trying to think. No. If, is there any actual inherent advantage to that? I think so, yeah. I mean, I think I've worked with, I've been very lucky, I've worked with lots of directors who are really intuitive and, and thoughtful about acting. But I think Paul could see, and Paul also knowing my work and knowing the things that I whinge about and get insecure about, he was quite good at, you know, Paul was really good at was identifying when I was holding back a bit because I will always kind of lean towards restraint and do less. And he was really good at finding those moments and sort of encouraging me to do more. Yeah. yeah. Well, without divulging any kind of major plot points there i will just say that the movie has been rolling out at all these basically every festival of this year mm. the the big ones we can say can toronto new york as examples what's the rollout of this film been like and then just as sort of a thought exercise here would your character jeanette have actually been a happier person if she were at that same time and place in her life but living in the world today so the rollout of the film has been since January in Sundance and that has been so fun because we are all really good friends who don't see each other very much because we live they live in New York and I live in London so actually getting to go to Cannes together and getting to go to Toronto and be in all those quite kind of funny intimidating rooms <laughs> we have had a really nice time and we've had a really nice time talking about the film because we love it that has been really amazing I think there was discussion about bringing the film into the present day simply for budget reasons, yeah, just because it would be so much easier yeah. to make it yeah. now. But I think there were added constraints on women, obviously, but they still exist today. So there's definitely a version of this film that exists. And what has been most striking has been this conversation about unlikability and what our expectations of women and men are on screen and how people have reacted so strongly to seeing a woman being less than perfect. Well, that was even the thing that, you know, Obama, who I'll speak for myself, I, I love, but he got... You know, he took a lot of flack for saying when he was up against Hillary in 2008, mm. you know, oh, you're likable enough, Hillary, basically dismissing that that same thing as if there, you know, I think there is maybe a different standard for, I think certainly a different standard for women than men to this day of, as far as how you, you know, I know the, the latest thing is why aren't you smiling? Yeah, like, right? I know. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, so anyway, last couple things. Is there any rhyme or reason why so many of your best performances, including the one in Wildlife, are in period pieces? There's no rhyme or reason. Just happened to work out. Those are the best jobs that have come along. So uh, I've been aching to do something contemporary, but, you know, they're just the best parts and I can't, I can't walk away from them. But there's been no design to the period stuff at all. Well, last thing, if you had to model the rest of your career after someone else's, you know, somebody that you, I, it sounds like you love Judy Dench, but I mm. think you do different, you've had very different ways into your career. So mm. I think she didn't even act in mm. films until way later. So I guess, is there somebody though, who you look to and you're like, if I could go along a similar trajectory, that would be great by me. Probably Rachel Weisz. Oh yeah. I'm going to, I mean, I could probably list like 15 women, but I think my sensibilities lie most closely with her in terms of the choices that she's made. Sounds favorite. I haven't seen it yet. I'm dying to see it. Her best thing in a long time. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Thank Appreciate you so it. much. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that. 
and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.